Our topic is Christian Just War Teaching and Ukraine. Christian Just War Teaching and Ukraine. Now, we're not going to get to the Ukraine part today. This is part one. I had a second sermon on the resurrection. I preached it last week and my camera broke, and people don't want to hear the same sermon from last week. So I'll have to just tape that sometime and post it. <clears throat> you'll find this very interesting. And our, ta- our text, as you'll know why later, <coughs> Luke 22. And uh, I'll read verse 35 to 36. Let's see. When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garments, garment and buy one. This is Jesus. Buy a sword. For I say to you that, that this which is written must be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So he said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And you'll see why I'm quoting that in a minute. Because we're going to deal, uh, today we're going to deal with the objection of the pacifists on uh, why Christians should not engage. There is no thing as a just war. All war is wrong and all self-defense is wrong. There's been a lot of debate lately among conservatives, populists, Trump supporters, who tend to be anti-Ukraine war, and isolationists. By the way, uh, in the early 90s, when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, they were gar- their borders were guaranteed, this is a covenant, by the United States and Great Britain. Just let you know that. And of course, isolationists. Tucker Carlson, various leftists, many mega-Trump uh, nationalists, etc., uh, about whether or not the United States has any business supporting Ukraine in defense of their homeland against Russian attack. <clears throat> that is their attempt to conquer Ukraine and replace their elected civil government with a puppet regime loyal to the ruthless, murderous dictator of Russia, Vladimir Putin. A thoroughly satanic beast, if there ever was one. He has people murdered left and right. Uh, so it amazes me when I hear so-called conservatives uh, talking about Russia as a, you know, really a Christian nation. Well, Christians don't attack their neighbors and murder people. They don't murder pregnant women and little children. As Bible-believing Christians, we want to answer such a question, not simply pragmatically, or politically, but biblically. What does the Bible have to say? It doesn't matter how we feel or what we think. Our thinking has to be in line with the Bible. Therefore, before we even consider the situation in Ukraine, we need to examine what the Bible says about war. We need to consider what Orthodox Christian theologians call just war doctrine. (coughs) That is, the idea that under certain circumstances, waging war against an enemy is not only lawful, that that is, it is moral or in accordance with the Bible, but also required by God. It's not simply that it's okay to take up arms in certain situations. There are situations where you ought to do it, and if you don't do it, it's sinful. On a personal level, for example, if a guy breaks in your house at night and he wants to rape your wife and murder her and chop off her head, you have every bit of a right to put some bullets into that guy and kill him. And if you don't, you're a bad husband, and you're sinning. But we'll look at that in a minute. Now, before we examine all this, however, there are a few preliminary comments that need to be made. First, it is important as Christian interpreters of Scripture who are seeking direction from God that we make a distinction between things in the Old Testament that were temporary, typological, and unique to the Jewish state and things that are clearly rooted and or based upon God's moral law, which therefore remain binding and applicatory to Christians today. For example, in the Old Testament economy, God gave the covenant people a specific land in the Middle East. 
Today we call it Palestine. It's really Judea. <clears throat> With set borders. God told them exactly where their borders were going to be. He promised this all to Abraham. He commanded the people of Israel after the exodus from Egypt to conquer that land promised to Abraham with wars of extermination. God gave the heathen peoples within those lands over 400 years to repent. But they were given over to rank idolatry, gross sexual immorality, including ritual prostitution, homosexuality, and bestiality. Bestiality was part of the religion in Canaan and in Egypt, and there's proof of it. I've seen it from secular sources. And even child sacrifice, very common. Common among the uh, Canaanites and common among the, um, the boat peoples on the coast, the Philistines. The seven Canaanite nations in the land were placed under the ban, the Hebrew word cherim, the cherim principle, and were set aside for destruction by God. The destruction of these wicked peoples was a moral act required by Yahweh. It was a command. They were commanded to destroy those seven nations, and of course they weren't very disobedient. They were disobedient and didn't finish the job and were afflicted by them. But this conquest was based on direct revelation from God and was a one-time, one-time, unique to Israel event that served that also served a typological purpose. In fact, <clears throat> when King David was at the height of his power, remember David was very faithful, well, you know, when he wasn't, he didn't, he, you know, he committed adultery, he had his problems, but he was very faithful in conquering some of those peoples that had not been conquered. When he was at the height of his power and he numbered the people to go to war Beyond what God had given to Israel, beyond the borders, God judged him and the nation strongly for this act of rebellion. That's 2 Samuel 24, 1-25. It wasn't just he wanted to know how many people in the land were and God got upset about that. No, he was numbering the men to go to war. This informs us that the conquest of Canaan in the Old Testament was a one-time act, even under the Old Covenant and thus did not authorize wars of aggression against heathen states beyond Israel. That's very clear. It's a very logical deduction. The duty of the covenant people, after they were established in the land, was to obey God's moral laws and the civil laws of justice that flowed from the moral law in order to be a national example to the surrounding pagan nations. And that's Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8. Their method of evangelism was to have a covenant-keeping state, and all the states around Israel would go, whoa, they have the best economy, they have the least amount of crime by far, they have the best justice system, they're just. Boy, their God really loves them, let's look into that God. Of course, they weren't faithful. Their covenant faithfulness was to be a form of evangelism to demonstrate the national and personal benefits of Yahweh's salvation and godly rule in society. The conquest of Canaan with the physical sword serves as a type of the gospel conquest of planet Earth by Christ's sheep through the spiritual sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ, Revelation 19.15, which we know the double-edged sword, Ephesians, is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is this, which is inspired, 1 Timothy 3, 16-17, infallible, John 10, 35, perfect, Psalm 19, 7, word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. <coughs> so the Christian, we never use carnal means. We never have justification for an aggressive war against pagans. Now, if, if, if a Muslim state flies some airplanes into some buildings, and we, we have proof, which is an act of war, that's another matter. But the United States is not a Christian nation, unfortunately. It started with a Christian worldview that was a predominant worldview. It affected, greatly affected our Constitution, making it the best Constitution in the world, but it has its defects. They don't explicitly acknowledge Christ. Islam, which is a Unitarian cult, it's nothing but a cult. Muhammad was a liar. 
and the vision that he first saw of the angel, he thought it was he thought it might be Satan and his uh, older uh, mistress or uh, apparently wife at that time said no no it's an angel. Islam, a Unitarian cult which is made up by the wicked false prophet Muhammad, a rapist, thief, liar, and murderer, is based on military conquest, bloodshed, and pillage, not the word of the infinite personal God, Yahweh, who actually exists. So they're the ones who believe in conquest. We do not. We believe in conquest of the spirit. We do not believe in physical violence or force. At all. So I just want to get that out of the way, because people, atheists who think they're disproving Christianity and the Bible and talking about how evil God is, they have no understanding of the difference between uh, moral law and specific acts in history that are unique, that are commanded by God. With the coming of Christ and the removal of national Israel's kingdom status due to the rejection of Christ and apostasy, the true religion is spread only by spiritual means, the preaching of the gospel, the planting of new churches, the discipling of the nations by teaching them to obey the, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to adopt the Christian world and life view, the Christian law order. Base everything on what scripture teaches, not autonomous man's thought, just making things up. Oh, homosexuality? We think it's okay now. Everybody, it's good. Let's all celebrate it. This is, in fact, this is a Sodomite Pride Month this month. Um, this is Sodomite Pride Month. <clears throat> and people don't realize this, but all the stuff about performing for children with the drag queens, the sex perverts, they're real, what they're trying to do is they're trying to legitimize pedophilias because that's what homosexuals want to legitimize. That's what they want. They want pedophilia to be accepted next. And then who knows where it'll go after that. Perhaps uh, sheep and goats. We don't know. But it's a perversion. <clears throat> Second, The arguments for pacifism on certain professing Christian sects, various Anabaptist communions, and some Protestant liberals or modernists, are based on a false, invalid, incorrect interpretation, inferences, and applications of certain scripture texts, primarily the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20.13, Deuteronomy 5.17, and even more primarily, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 38 to 47. So let us briefly examine a correct interpretation and application of these passages. So let's look at this for a while. This will take up a while. The Sixth Commandment does not prohibit killing in general, but only the unlawful, unauthorized taking of a human life. And this view is demonstrated in a number of ways. Number one, there are a number of different words, Hebrew words, that have been translated kill. And these words have different shades of meaning and applications. The word nakah is used in reference to accidental killings. For example, Numbers 35.15. The words um, harak, Exodus 32.27, and shalel are often chosen by the inspired authors for the killing that occurs in warfare. When it comes to the ritual slaying of animals and, uh, and sacrifice, the words zaveh and tabak and shakat are preferred. The word used in the sixth commandment, ratzak, refers to the unjustified, unlawful taking of human life, and thus is better translated murder. Thou shalt not murder. And most modern translations reflect this meaning by translating the commandment, you shall not murder. The, I just looked up a few in my library. The New King, New King James Version. The New American Standard Bible. The NIV. Young's Literal Translation. The New Revised Standard Version. The New English Bible. James Moffat Translation. The Berkeley Version. The Living Bible. The King James II, etc. And we could go on if I looked up more versions. This meaning is reflected in the New Testament use, uh, phoneo, uh, Matthew 5.21, Mark 10.19, Luke 18.20, Romans 13.9, and James 2.11, which is the verb form of the noun phoneus, which means murderer. Thou shalt not murder. Number two, 
The Bible, and this is very important here, the Bible explicitly teaches that killing someone in self-defense is not murder or a criminal act. For example, Exodus 22, 2-3 says, If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, and there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. Okay, so if a thief breaks in during the night, the, the verb there, break in, literally means dig through. They had mud houses. Their houses were made out of clay, mixed with straw. They made them out of mud. And what a thief would do is he'd get like a shovel type thing, and he would dig a hole in it, and he'd go through the hole. <clears throat> When one cannot see the burglar is up to or how he is armed, it is perfectly lawful to kill him in self-defense. During the day, however, when one can see clearly and easily defend, one must make an attempt to capture him and hand him over to the authorities so he can be forced to make restitution. And that's the restitution is Exodus 22. I forgot to write the verse down. Pretty clear, right? It's nighttime. You can't see what's going on. You hear a burglar. You don't have to stop and turn the light on and ask him what he's doing. You basically pull your gun out and make sure it's a burglar, not, not one of your kids or something, and you shoot him. Perfectly lawful. Number three, there are several crimes noted in God's law that are so heinous that Yahweh requires the death penalty. So if God said, thou shalt not kill, and it was used in a very general way, there would be no death penalty for any crime. And secular humanists today in Europe, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, even Mexico, uh, in many countries, they've all abolished the death penalty for everything. And that's totally unbiblical. The murderer must, especially first and second degree murder, they must be put to death. Here's some examples. Murder. Numbers 35, 16 to 21, Genesis 9, 5 and 6, Exodus 21, 23 to 25, homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22 and 20 verse 13. Bestiality, Leviticus 20.15 to 16. Oh, and also Leviticus 18.23 and 29. Adultery, Leviticus 20.15 to 16. <clears throat> now, that's, there are other passages that say uh, adultery, if the victim does not want the person to be put to death, but it wants a, a huge sum of money instead or some kind of other penalty, that's possible. Witchcraft, Exodus 22.19, sorcery, uh, also. A kidnapping, Exodus 21.16, false prophecy or public seduction to idolatry, Deuteronomy 13.1-15, public blasphemy, Leviticus 24.16-23, and 23. incest, Leviticus uh, 20, verse 12, obstinate rebellion against and mistreatment of one's parents, Exodus 21.15, Leviticus 20, verse 9, See Proverbs 20.20. 20. And of course, sacrificing to false gods, Exodus 22.20. 20. I might have missed one or two, but there's death penalty for many crimes. Therefore, those are very, very serious crimes. If the death penalty against certain specific wicked crimes has been instituted by God himself, <clears throat> then obviously... One cannot condemn such penalties without impugning God's own nature and character. Remember, the Mosaic Law was given by God to Moses. Now, the Ten Commandments were written on stone by the finger of Christ himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, and the other statutes and everything were told to Moses, and he wrote it all down. Putting men to death under certain circumstances is not only lawful, but it's the right, just, proper thing to do. You see, in a biblical law order, you're protecting society. For example, you know, like these things, situations in New York where some guy pushed somebody in front of a train, some guy, and, and the guy who died, uh, the Michael Jackson impersonator who was choked to death when the guy was trying to protect him from hurting people on the train, that guy had, he'd been arrested for crimes 50 times. No, 70 times. Might have been 70. It was 50 or 70. And his father or brother, I forget which one, who is complaining about it, saying it was murder, he's been arrested dozens and dozens of times as well for serious crimes. In the Bible, if you're a repeat offender over and over again, basically your lifestyle is one of being a criminal, you're put to death. <clears throat> 
God determines ethics and justice, not autonomous man. Putting men to death under certain circumstances is not only lawful, but is the right thing to do. Those who oppose the biblical use of the death penalty and what the Bible regards as a just war, they oppose Christ, God, and his infallible word. God's word give us, gives us the principles and reasonings behind the sanctity of life. Men are created in God's image and likeness. When secular humanists and heretics and misguided professing Christians oppose the death penalty, they oppose individual responsibility, genuine justice, and they penalize the victims of such crimes. For example, the wives, the sons and daughters, and close relatives of the murder victim. Now, when I'm relaxing, I like to watch true crime shows. And of course, I, I love shows about I like cars and music. But I, one thing I notice in these in, in these crime shows, they're not about Christians. They're about just regular Americans. Of course, I watch British crime shows and Australian crime shows as well. But when somebody is murdered, like you have a young daughter and she's 18, she's in college and she's raped and murdered, they want justice. It's like innate to the human being. They want justice. They want the death penalty. They really do. Now there's people that are, a few people that are so twisted in their thinking and perverted that they don't want the death penalty, but the vast majority of people want the death penalty. They seek justice. And those people are denied justice when that person, after a lawful trial and it's to totally proven that he's the, the guilty party, they're not put to death. Number four, and that reminds me of the passage, the compassion of the wicked is cruel. They think they're being compassionate by not putting murderers to death. No, they're not. They're denying justice, and they're being uncompassionate to the victims of the crime. Number four, the Bible contains a number of rules for a just form of warfare. <clears throat> and these laws presuppose that under certain circumstances, killing is lawful and necessary. Here's just a, a very brief recounting of these laws. Only men, not women or children, and they have to, men over the age of 20 years of age who are able-bodied are to be sent into war. Numbers 1, 2 to 3, 18, 20, 45, 26, 2 and 4. A man who is newly married or is betrothed to be married has a one-year exception to the, in order to establish a family. Deuteronomy 21, uh, verse 1, 5 to 8, and 24, 5. The Bible places an incredibly high value on the family. And that man who just got married or, or is about to get married, he gets a year off to enjoy his wife and try to have some children going, get some children going. Peace negotiations must precede an attack on a city in order to give one's enemy an opportunity to live. Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. The law forbids destroying an enemy's fruit trees. Deuteronomy 20, 19 to 20. Why fruit trees? Well, it takes, you know, you plant a tree, you know, they didn't, back then they didn't get to go to the nursery and buy a big tree. You plant a tree and you have to wait years for it to produce. And this implies that civilians in a just war must not be targeted for destruction, only combatants. Israel, and by implication, any professing Christian countries, must not make covenants or alliances with wicked, idolatrous peoples in a war or in peace. Exodus 23, 31-33, 34, 12-16, Deuteronomy 7, 1-4. Okay, it was ex extremely immoral and wrong for Great Britain. Now, Great Britain is a professing Christian country. Their established church is Episcopalianism, or prelacy. The United States is not a Christian nation, but it was still wrong to make an alliance with the Soviet Union against Nazi Germany. Yes, we should have fought Nazi Germany. Yes, that was totally just. Yes, we should have fought Japan. Yes, that was totally just. But it was totally immoral and wrong to make an alliance with the Soviet Union. We could have defeated Germany without the Soviet Union. The United States, by the way, as far as war production, airplanes, tanks, guns, bullets, we've outproduced every other country on planet Earth during World War II. We outproduced Germany, Great Britain, and Russia, and Japan combined. Yeah, we did. We could have won that war. So it was unnecessary. And what did we have after that? Well, the Soviet Union got Eastern Europe and Finland and we had uh, the Cold War. And we're still living with that sin today with Vladimir Putin. <clears throat> Stalin and his comrades in the civil government were ever but as evil and satanic as Hitler and his cronies. And they attacked Poland too, not just Hitler. Russia or Soviet Union attacked Poland. 
And by the way, when they attacked Poland, they murdered 40,000 officers from the Polish army in a forest. Warfare is never to be used to expand one's borders or to promote colonialism. 2 Samuel 24, 1-25. If, however, a nation is unlawfully attacked and suffers great damage, some form of restitution can be part of the peace treaty. Okay, so the Bible's not against restitution. This would include payments, machinery, or in a severe case, some loss of territory. It has to be done in a manner that does not impoverish the civilians of the losing nation, which could lead to another war. And we all know that the terrible peace treaty of 1919 uh, led to World War II because we impoverished Germany so much that when a raving lunatic comes along as their Messiah, their Savior, they followed him. Although Hitler never had a majority vote. A majority vote. I mean, he won a majority of the votes in an election that he set up, but he never had over 50% support in Germany. He, I think his highest was 40 or something, 42 maybe. Uh, but it, it's a shame. Now, the rise in secular humanism in the Industrial Revolution has led to a catastrophic form of wars where civilians are attacked and more innocent civilians are slain than soldiers. If you look at the statistics for World War II, and I just looked at them recently, uh, about 12.5 million Russian soldiers died, but the total killed in the Soviet Union was 28 million. Yeah, 28 million. I know it's shocking. Uh, Germany, the total amount of uh, soldiers killed, I believe, was 9 million, and the total killed was 14 million. So not more civilians died. And then uh, China, uh, Burma, India, uh, way more civilians were killed. The Japanese were brutal. Way more civilians were killed, and South and Korea, those countries, Indonesia, those countries suffered way more under the Japanese. More civilians were slaughtered than soldiers. That's an aspect of modern warfare. Now, I'm not saying that if you go way back in history, you can find people like Hannibal. Uh, you can, well, not Hannibal, but uh, Genghis Khan, uh, people like that, who who slaughtered civilians as well. But I'm just saying, medieval warfare, which was under some Christian principles, they they never attacked civilians. They did not attack civilians. They did not destroy your property. It was soldiers against soldiers. <clears throat> While the professing Christian nations of Europe and the Middle Ages engaged in unjust wars due to sin and wicked leadership, there were all kinds of unjust wars, they avoided total warfare where civilians and infrastructure were destroyed. The Bible tells us that the source of wars is sin, especially covetousness, James 4, 1-3. After the fall, wars are inevitable. Wars will continue till Christ returns. Christians must engage in just warfare to defend their loved ones and property. The point of biblical laws regarding warfare are to make sure that wars are just and done according to biblical principles. So if, if killing forbids all killing, even lawful killing, why would the Bible have all these principles on how to conduct warfare? The best method for attaining peace among men is, of course, to preach the gospel and teach men the whole counsel of God. The Anabaptist and modern heresy of pacifism does not stop wars. It only guarantees that evil men will prevail. You know, they're protected by the people willing to take up arms. If all of Europe was pacifists, all of Europe would be uh, speaking German right now. <laughs> you know, and Hitler would have won. So what about the Sermon on the Mount? And this is the, the more substantial argument. The other main argument of professing Christian pacifists comes from our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 38-45, Jesus said this, You have heard it said, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's uh, quoting from the Old Testament law. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, let him have the cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, 
that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, the basic pacifist argument from the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus has brought an end to the Old Testament's rather harsh way of dealing with crimes and disputes and has replaced it with the New Testament ethic of pure love. And if you ever hear you know, Anabaptist preachers, you know, you're, that's how they talk. And modernists talk the same way, although they don't really believe in the Bible anyway, so I don't understand why they would get into this. Christians are not to resist evil and take up arms, but rather must turn the other cheek and trust God to come to their defense. And this you ignores the actual meaning of Christ's teaching and must be rejected for the following reasons. First, our Lord makes it perfectly clear at the beginning, near the beginning of the sermon that he did not come to destroy, annul, or abrogate moral laws or laws of justice within the Mosaic Code. Matthew 5.17. In fact, not one jot or tittle will pass away. Matthew 5.18. And the personal righteousness of his disciples, as defined by the Old Testament moral law, must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 5.20. So he's telling the scribes and Pharisees who are there listening, you know, people that follow them, not only am I not getting rid of the, the Old Testament moral laws, but I expect you to be way more obedient to the law than these phonies over here, these scribes and Pharisees. Jesus refutes not the law of Moses, but rather the scribal and pharisaical perversions of the law that were commonly accepted among Jews at that time. And this can be seen in the Jewish perversion of the of you shall love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18, with a non-scriptural addition, and you shall hate your enemy, Matthew 5.43. The Bible never says to hate your enemy. It says to hate evil, it never says to hate, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It just says love your neighbor. Second, Jesus is refuting the Jewish perversion of the lex talionis, which teaches that the civil courts must judge according to the principle that the penalty for the crime must fit the crime. Exacting a penalty of, of rest, or restitution that is neither too harsh or too lenient. Justice. When a murderer, I, and I've watched these crimes, I've seen where guys murder, murder their wives and cut them up, and uh, they get a good lawyer, and they, they get 10 years. It, does, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but it happens. The Jews had taken a just civil law, and they had used it for a justification for personal retaliation. The very law given by God, so personal vengeance and vendettas would be avoided, what we call vigilantism, and true civil justice established was used as a proof text for revenge and personal violence. And of course, the Jews only applied neighbor to Jews. You could hate Samaritans. You could hate none. You could hate the Gentiles. And then, of course, the story of the Samaritan who helps the Jew who's beaten up by robbers demonstrates that that's not true. You have to love even those who don't love you. In addition... And by love, I don't mean emotional love. You know, you have this warm feeling in your heart for these scumbags. No, it's, it's love means treat them lawfully and kindly and compassionately based on Scripture. It doesn't mean you have warm, tender feelings toward them. In addition, they applied their faults to you in a racist, unjust manner. Penalties are different for Jew and foreigners or Gentiles. And that's, and that's basically true of all pagan cultures back then. And they were retaliating for personal offenses which were not even defined as crime by God's law. Third, <clears throat> one must not interpret this passage in a manner that violates the analogy of Scripture or which places an explicit contradiction between Jesus' teaching and the Old Testament moral law, which is based on God's nature and character, and therefore is perfect, Psalm 19.7. In fact, Jesus' teaching... In this section on loving one's enemies, going the extra mile, turning one's cheek in personal disputes, is based on God's nature and character and how that character reflects itself in the created order. See Matthew 5, 43-45. The basis of all true ethical norms is that God himself is holy, righteous, good, truth, and love. He is the foundation of all morality or ethical demands. He has created man in his own image or likeness. Therefore, we are to be like him in our behavior towards other men. Matthew 5.45a 
Our Lord's foundational argument applies equally to both Old and New Testaments. And we read that earlier. Hey, God makes a sunrise on the evil and the good. God sends both the good and evil rain. Consequently, if Christ is contradicting the Old Testament moral law, he would be arguing either that the God of the Old Testament is somehow harsher and less loving and righteous than the God of the New Testament, or that Yahweh's nature and character is subject to change, which is an abominable heresy. God cannot change. Yahweh, I change not. God does not change. Moreover, even a casual reading of Scripture proves that the pacifist interpretation is untenable. After the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples carry two swords for self-defense in the Savior's presence. In fact, our Lord commanded the disciples to be prepared for self-defense against unlawful personal violence. And this is that passage I read earlier, Luke 22, 36, and 38. Therefore he said to them, But now, he who has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise a knapsack. And he who has a sword, no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So they said to him, Lord, look, we have two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Travel from city to city in the ancient world could be very dangerous due to brigands. They didn't have police driving around in cars like we do. Christ had no problem whatsoever with the lawful or justified use of a weapon of, for self-defense. Although a number of commentators, I was surprised how many, a lot, a number of commentators believe the sword um, is purely symbolic. One does not need to buy money for something metaphorical. There's nothing in the context that supports a symbolic interpretation. And if you say the sword is symbolic, then you've got to say the knapsack is symbolic. And the other things are symbolic, which are obviously used for traveling. So the, the symbolic view, which is, you know, J.C. Ryle and a, a bunch of good commentators hold this view. It, it, it's nonsense. It's not symbolic. He's talking about real swords. And when Peter says, oh, when they say, look, we have two swords. He doesn't say, oh, no, you misunderstood me. I meant, I don't mean real swords. I meant something symbolic. He goes, oh, that's good. You've got two swords. That's enough. But some will ask, if swords are in mind, why then did Jesus tell Peter to put away his sword when the temple police officer sent by the Sanhedrin came to arrest him? Uh, see Matthew 26, 51, 52, John 18, 10 to 11. And the answer to this question is simple. Number one, if Peter had stopped the arrest, he would have in interfered with God's plan for the Redeemer to be arrested, tried, unlawfully convicted, tortured, and crucified as an expiatory sacrifice in the place of the elect. He would have been stopping God's plan. And Jesus made it abundantly clear that even his arrest was part of God's decretive will by pointing out that he could have summoned 12 legions of angels. He did not need to be defended. 12 legions, that's thousands of angels. One angel killed 200,000 Assyrians. Two, the, the well-armed police force sent to arrest the Savior could have easily defeated the disciples. If the apostles had been killed, the Great Commission could not have taken place. Number three, if our Lord's position was that using a sword in self-defense was always wrong, why then does Peter own a sword? If it is always wrong for a Christian to use a gun against burglars, brigands, and rapists, then why would a Christian go out and buy a gun? Well, here's the response to that. But what about those who argue that in Luke 22, 36, and 38, Christ is not speaking about a sword, but a butcher knife to cut up meat? So when you're traveling, you can make a sandwich. That's actually an interpretation. Well, the word for sword used here is makara, which refers to a short double-edged sword used, worn on the sheaf of the leg. It was an offensive weapon used by the Roman soldiers. The idea that Jesus is instructing his disciples to be ready to slice roasted lamb for lunch is grasping after straw. But that is an interpretation by pacifists. And it's a ridiculous one. <laughs> when Paul dealt with the duty of the civil magistrate, he said that the civil magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. Romans 13, 1-4. The sword was the Roman instrument of law enforcement and execution. It was also the chief tool of ancient civil governments for waging war against foreign invaders. 
In the case of the woman caught in the very act of adultery, Jesus did not object to the death penalty, John 8, 1-11, but rather rejected the accusers as being unlawful witnesses, John 8, 7. When Christ saw that the court of the temple had been turned into an area of fraud and commerce, he made a whip of cords and drove out the animals and overturned the tables of the money changers. Matthew 21, 12 to 16, Mark 11, 15 to 17, Luke 19, 45 to 47, John 2, 13 to 16. And he did it twice. And the, the word used there, it's, 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 it's a handle with several cords tied on it. It had pieces of bone and metal on it. It is obvious that our Lord's command not to resist an evil person, Matthew 5.39a, is limited by the context, the analogy of Scripture, to personal insults and individual disputes, not matters of criminal enforcement, self-defense in matters where serious bodily harm or death may occur, and the use of arms in a just war, for example, self-defense against foreign aggression. Isn't that obvious? The disciples had swords. Jesus told them, make sure you have swords for, for defense. And, of course, in the United States, we could talk about, like we're in Texas here, and how many people have been saved by, by having a gun from a, from a madman, a, a criminal. Many people have been. <coughs> Fourth, that our Lord is not condemning the civil magistrate for using a sword against criminals, murderers, and foreign invaders is demonstrated by the examples Jesus used. For example, he speaks of a slap on the right cheek. This is this cheek. Oh no, this cheek. If you're going to slap somebody like this, you're going to hit the right. You're going to hit the left cheek. If you if you use the back of your hand, you're going to hit the right cheek. The right cheek. Yeah. <clears throat> Not being stabbed or speared or punched in the face. A slap in the right cheek means a blow from the back of the hand which according to rabbinic law was a great insult. They call it a double insult. Christ is not speaking of life-threatening physical violence, a knife or blow, a knife blow to one side. He is telling his disciples they, they must not respond in kind to personal insults, but must bear with them and not retaliate. Somebody insults you and slaps you with the back of their hand, which is a slap of insult. It's not a physical threat of death. Don't respond in kind. That's all he's teaching. The disciples must bear with it and not retaliate. The return insults with insults is to invite more conflict by tempting the aggressor to become even more hostile. What happens when people, they're, you know, the pagans, you know, they're in a bar, they go outside, they get in a fight. And, and, and instead of the one guy just cooling off and backing down and saying, I'm not going to fight and walking away, uh, he fights. And what does the guy, the other guy, he goes out and grabs a gun and shoots him. It leads to more violence. It, leads, it, it, it makes the violence worse. Christians are to be peacekeepers who nip conflicts in the bud rather than encourage them. The Savior is not teaching us to allow brigands to beat, up or, uh, to beat us up or accept a violent assault, but rather to turn the other cheek during strong insults by acting in a loving, peaceful, calm, controlled manner among people who hate and despise us. As Paul says, Romans 12, 17 to 21, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. By saying if it is possible, there are some times when it's not possible. Guy comes, breaks in your house in the middle of the night. I'm going to rape your murder. I'm going to rape and murder your wife. What are you going to do about it? You're going to stand there and watch? No, you're going to shoot him in the head. If it is possible, as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to God's wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans twelve seventeen to 21 And what is Paul quoting from there? Is he quoting from the Sermon on the Mount? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 35 and Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. Because the teaching of Jesus on non-retaliation and love comes directly from the Old Testament. It does. It comes right out of the Old Testament. 
There are a number of such Old Testament passages. Here's a few, just a few. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, don't, if there's something bothering you, you don't think in your mind, I'm going to get even. You don't dwell on it. You put it away. Now, if it's a Christian, obviously you want to seek peaceful reconciliation with them in private. And if they tell you to blank, blankety blank, blank, and hit the road, you can go to the, get a witness and then go to the, follow Matthew 18. But you're not to meditate on how I'm going to get revenge on so-and-so. As a despised, persecuted minority in a heathen culture, such behavior not only reflects God's love, but also shows great wisdom. Proverbs 37.11, which is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 5.5, 5, The meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Also see 1 Peter 2.23. So Christians are to conduct their behavior in such a manner as to not invite hostility from a heathen civil magistrate or an unfriendly pagan or secular community. Beloved, the gospel's offensive enough. Christian ethics are offensive enough. We're not to be the offense. You understand? This teaching does not mean, however, that believers are not to compromise the gospel or water down or alter or ignore biblical ethics because the Bible's teaching may be offensive to unbelievers. The secular humanistic community today, most industries, the civil government, all universities and colleges except Christian ones, think that Christian ethics on sexuality are demonic, satanic. They hate it. But it's totally biblical, and what they're teaching is satanic and crazy. If we are to be persecuted, it must be because of the offense of the cross in God's law, not our own bad, uncharitable behavior. Uh, read First Peter two nineteen to twenty three, where he discusses this very thing. The many professing Christians, even in, even in evangelicals, who have compromised biblical ethics, for example, on idolatry, the acceptance of pluralism for civil government and our constitution that's you're basically saying equal time for satan treated you know like george bush who claims to be a methodist who claims to be a christian uh when the saudi arabia said uh in the gulf war no crosses no bibles no christian teaching on our property on our land he agreed with that and he he, he set that in motion uh after 9-11 george Bo george w bush again he had an ecumenical service with a Muslim, they had a shaman, they had a bunch of different religions up there represented to deal with the 9-11. That is rank idolatry. Of course, also sexual ethics, the compromises on divorce and remarriage. People are getting divorced for any reason today that are professing Christians, and the church doesn't do anything and lets them remarry. And, of course, homosexuality. The churches are getting soft on homosexuality. Homosexuality is not an inborn trait. It is an act. It is a decision to engage in perverse behavior. It is an abomination, the Bible says, that is worthy of death, the death penalty by the civil magistrate. Um, and we know that it's not hereditary. We know that it's not inborn. People aren't born that way because studies have been done, extensive studies with twins, Identical twins. Their DNA couldn't be any closer. One's a raving heterosexual womanizer and the other's a raving sodomite. Uh, if, if it was inborn, that wouldn't be true. They would both have to be sodomites, and that's just not the case. There's, there's all this proof that homosexuality is, is a learned behavior, but they ignore the proof because they're living on a presupposition, an antichrist presupposition. It is syncretism. They do this in order to better align and get along with our unbelieving, worldly, secular culture. And that's very disturbing, and it's, it's nothing but syncretism. And it strongly pleases the Lord. Christ is telling us that the answer to personal insults and unjust, untrue personal attacks is to follow the Savior's pattern and endure them with kind, good behavior. Okay, so I, I've dealt with a pacifist position. Uh, we're not going to get to the actual war part yet. And I have some more to say. I just I have a concluding thing about pacifism I didn't say. The pacifist position is really the embracing and allowing of evil. 
the Bible teaches, and this is just common sense, the Bible teaches that if evil is taking place and you have the ability to stop that, I'm talking about a crime. You know, it's not your duty to go yell at somebody who's using bad curse words or who may be dressed inappropriately. We're talking about crimes. If somebody's engaging in a crime, especially one of violence against another person, and you have the ability to stop it and you don't, the Bible teaches that you're liable. You contributed to evil by not stopping it. All it takes for evil to uh, prosper and grow is for people to do nothing and just let it grow. It's our duty as Christians to, to do something. Now, I'm not saying if there's a guy robbing a bank with a machine gun that you have to try to stop him with a gun because <laughs> you'll get yourself killed and other people killed. I'm talking about things where you actually can do something. But we're going to stop there. And uh, it's not the best place to stop, but I had a busy week. But uh, the resurrection, the second resurrection sermon, I'll have to get it up there some other time. But I hope that's helpful. You see that the use of violence, the use of uh, the death penalty and lawful just war and fighting against crime is totally lawful. The important thing is, are you doing it in accordance with the biblical world and life view? Are you doing it according to the Christian biblical law order, the God's law revealed in the Bible? Because it is, it really tells us how to do things and what to do. And when uh, Christians, like some of these strict Presbyterians, say, oh, no, all the laws of the Old Testament, we just follow the Ten Commandments. Everything else in the Old Testament that's moral and content, we reject that. We follow natural law. When people do that, all they're doing is, is embracing human autonomy and injustice. They are. It's sad. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your law. We thank you for Christ's teaching. What a beautiful thing. It really tells us that it is our duty to get involved. It is our duty to defend the innocent. It is our duty to defend the orphan and the widow from murderous tyrants who seek to slay them, especially ones we've made a covenant with. So Lord, help us to understand this and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.